those bow heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for sending your Son to take our place, to purchase us, to redeem us from the slave market of sin, Father, when we were hopeless and helpless. And to prove it all, to justify it, you rose from the dead, Father. What an incredible place to be in this moment to realize that we have resurrected with him for eternal life. We're just so grateful for all that you've done for us, Father. We do pray for those that can't be with us here this morning, that they share in the celebration somehow. We pray for those that are still lost and don't understand the first thing about it. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the work that preceded it. We do just ask for your blessings on this message, Father, that it be edifying for our souls. Send us soaring with hope and gladness and peace. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Resurrection Sunday special. Let's open up with some Holy Scripture. Go to John 8.54. John 8.54. John 8.54. Jesus answered, and the context is to the antagonistic Jews of the time. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. You have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What a tremendous thing to say from someone who just equated himself with God. This is the perspective we need to have, especially on days like today. To help drive this home, go to Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus said, I am. And this has been his place always, do you see? And that's the perspective the Spirit wants to instill in us this morning. I am. Hebrews 13, 8, just to drive this home. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. Never changed. I am, he said. Yesterday, today, and forever. So keep these passages in mind, and we're going to get back to Hebrews 13.8 in a little bit. As I mentioned uh, before prayer even, 
Resurrection Sunday messages always give me pause. And it's not for lack of what to say. Rather, it's for lack of my own ability to choose how not to say everything and have a, I don't know, a 10-hour message. <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, again, I'm just sharing. It's me getting in the way, of course, because this message was ordained from eternity past, but just sharing that it's really hard to get it all baked into an hour. Hopefully you can appreciate what I'm getting at. There's just so much to say on this particular day from this pulpit. And so, like you, I'm sure, flooded with gratitude that is simply indescribable. Makes me think of this verse up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be to God for his inexpressible, I think in the New American it says indescribable, his inexpressible gift. So if you're in the same boat I am this morning, please know that you are not alone. According to Holy Scripture, it's not even possible to fully express your gratitude towards Jesus Christ because it's not even possible to fully express Him. Just when you think you've expressed enough, you learn something more about Him. Or His Spirit reveals something greater about Him. He's that gift, you know, as they say, it keeps on giving. That's Jesus Christ. There's no end. So how do you fully express gratitude? You can't. Not when it's not even possible, according to Scripture, to fully express Him. So we need to just agree to that right out of the gate, because that will help us set proper perspective this morning. And again, that's what the Spirit wants here. There's no way I can cover it all, okay? But what we can do here this morning is gain some of that precious perspective that will stay with us. So that we, unlike the vast majority, it seems, of the world, we can appreciate this day. That everything to do with our faith, even justifying our celebration this morning, comes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we, when we agree to this, we have the, the seed of the right perspective that the Spirit wants to impart to us this morning. So let's continue with a familiar passage, arguably the most popular one, I don't know, but arguably the most popular one spoken on Resurrection Sunday across the world. Go to 1 Corinthians 15.1, 1 Corinthians 15.1, this will be our main passage Spirit has a lot to say. First <clears throat> Corinthians fifteen, verse one. Verse one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, According to the Scriptures, remember Old Testament prophesied it, but to the 
crux of this morning's message. The gospel transcends time. That's why the Spirit started the way He did with Jesus Christ saying, I am. And He's been the same always. Before human history even began, Jesus Christ was. And so His gospel is intrinsic to Him, which means that the gospel transcends time as we know it. With our recent mini-series on the other side of grace, the spirits had a lot to say about transcendence. Transcendence. This incredible concept hasn't been thrown out at us so that we can use it as a punchline. Not even close. Rather, it is the conclusion of a lot of good labor we've done together on the topic of grace. Grace. I would argue that the idea of transcendence is sourced by God alone. Transcendence is sourced by God alone. In other words, since He personally is transcendent, all that he does follows suit. As we've been learning in our studies, the love he gives us, in particular, is certainly transcendent. And that's what the Spirit's been focusing on the last couple of weeks even in our primary course of study. Why do we say that? Because he is the source of love. To quote 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. He imparts that love by grace to us, and we have the ability and the blessing of having it go through us, and we can express it to others. But He is always the source, and that source is transcendent. And therefore, when we partake in it, we too share in that transcendence. God is also the architect of our so great salvation. Therefore, we might also borrow from a Resurrection Sunday message a few years back. Up here on the board, I actually stole this principle from a few years ago. The ancient truth. The gospel transcends human history as we think of it. For it was planned by God from eternity past. God has always known that His creatures would fall and that He would save them. There was never a time where salvation wasn't an option, for God is immutable, means He never changes. And the Son of God has always wanted to die for us. He's always wanted to be our Savior. That is transcendent. All of that was real before human history even began. That's how the Spirit wants you to think about this morning, this message, this perspective that He's giving us. Recall this reference, Hebrews 13.8, is the opening verse we read together, or one of them, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, in other words, if 2,000 years ago he wanted to die in your place, in eternity past he wanted to do it. Which means that the gospel transcends what you think of as time. He said before Abraham, I am. I've always been me. I've always wanted to save you. I've always loved you. Do you understand? So when we use that term, transcendence, we ought never forget the source of it. More specifically, whenever we use the term to describe, say, love, 
this love that He has given us, we ought to remember the source. Whenever we use the term, we ought also to remember the entire sphere of God. Not just our own abiding in it, per se, because we do so imperfectly, experientially speaking. Again, let's read the point on the board together again. The gospel transcends human history as we think of it, for it was planned by God from eternity past. God has always known that his creatures would fall and that he would save them. There was never a time where salvation wasn't an option, for God is immutable. And the Son of God has always wanted to die for us. Here's the sister principle up here in the board. Jesus Christ has always been our Lord and Savior. Just think about that. Before you were even born, He was your Lord and Savior. He is that person of the Godhead uniquely as the Son of God and Son of Man. He owns all the titles, including Victor, and deserves every last ounce of love and respect He demands from us. Romans 5.17 Our celebration this morning is about a victory, then, that transcends time even. And that's where you need to take pause. We are celebrating a victory this morning that transcends time, that predates human history, certainly us as individuals. That's what we're here to celebrate. The incredible salvific plan of God, it's a mind blow. I know we like to serialize it, and we like to put it in our little categorical boxes and say this is how it was, and this is why, and blah, blah, blah. That, would, that makes it so much less amazing than it truly is. And that's what I love about it, because he says, can we stop trying to do that and just allow me to blow your mind? Does that make sense? Like, let me blow your mind. Your mind should be blown. I know you like to in your little flesh to try to put me in your little boxes which helps you put me on a shelf after Easter Sunday is over and your belly's full and your you know, tryptophan or whatever kicks in. And you, of course, it, nobody, does anybody eat turkey on Sunday, on Easter Sunday? Oh, Tammy is, that's right. So the tryptophan apparently is going <laughs> to, right? He doesn't want you to do that. He doesn't want you to put him on a shelf after the celebration is over. I was talking with someone this morning. Right? They're like, I, I want to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. I want to live. I'm summarizing. I want to live the resurrection life every day. 365. Not just on a Sunday that has the celebration tied to it. Do you understand? Like, and that person is very true. Very blessed to have that perspective, actually. So he owns all the titles, including Victor. He deserves every last ounce of love and respect he demands from us, Romans 5.17. Again, our celebration then is about a victory that transcends time even. Victory implies rising above uh, your enemies. In our case, it implies rising above that which our enemies use against us to control us, namely death itself and its instrument, namely sin. Even as believers in Christ, we have to deal with the vestiges of sin that leads us back to the throes of death. Even though we have been redeemed from the slave market, of sin. 
We have a flesh that loves to go back to it. Even though God has made us co-victors with Christ, we often act as if we've won nothing at all. As if Christ didn't overcome death itself. Simply put, we lose perspective. So, let's celebrate Christ's victory this morning. Again, up here on the board, Jesus Christ has always been our Lord and Savior. He is that person of the Godhead uniquely. As the Son of God and Son of Man, He owns all the titles, including Victor, and deserves every last ounce of love and respect He demands from us. Romans 5.17, here's the scripture, I'll give you the Amplified. Romans 5.17 reads, or the Amplified Classic, For if because of one man's trespass, lapse and offense, death reigned through that one, speaking of Adam, of course, much more surely will those who receive God's overflowing grace, unmerited favor, and the free gift of righteousness, putting them into right standing with himself, reign as kings in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That should be our attitude. That we are co-victors in Christ Jesus. Something that was cemented in eternity past Let's pick up where we left off. You still in 1 Corinthians? All right, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Some have died at that point. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul writing, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So just a little sidebar here. Tammy and I were having a pretty awesome conversation this past week about the concept of fitness. And if you've been here, you know that I've written blogs on it and taught on it several times. Fitness. As the Spirit's taught us so many times in the past, fitness is a way of life. It's a way of life that permeates all aspects of our physical, emotional, and spiritual lives. You understand? It's a way of life. It's not a gym membership, I can tell you that much. It's not the cover of GQ magazine, I can tell you that much. Right? Because I've been there. I'm kidding. That was a joke. Everybody's like, Tammy's the only one laughing. Maybe that's, I should be complimenting. People are like, was he really? I can see it. Tammy's laughing because she knows it's not true. But the rest of you are like, hmm, I can see it. Especially with this snazzy shirt. Oh, oh Kathy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Fitness is a way of life that permeates all aspects. Physical, emotional, spiritual. While fitness is often associated with physical conditioning, or what have you, the truth is, as we've learned up here on the board, that fitness is a mindset. Remember, the, the root of fitness is to be fit for something. There's always something in view. Fitness. Fit for what? Well, the most important thing to us is fit for service. 
to the Lord, right? And he gave us all emotions and a body and spiritual capability. And we ought to keep them ready for service. Does that make sense? So I've said this many, many times. I only say this as an example, not because of anything about myself. But there, I can't even tell you how many times I've been running down the road, miserable. And I say, this is for the congregation. Honest to goodness. Truth be told. I don't really feel like doing this right now. I'd rather have a chocolate donut. <laughs> I'm doing it for you. Why? Fitness. I want to be fit to serve. Can't do that if I'm in a hospital bed because I ate too many chocolate donuts. And my diabetes, I don't have diabetes, but my adult onset diabetes because I eat too many chocolate donuts set in and now I'm in a hospital bed. You follow? Yeah. Fitness is a mindset, okay? That's just an example. When we read Paul's self-described unfitness, we've got to take it in context. The context is that Paul was standing on his own merits. <coughs> or if he was standing on his own merits. The fact that God saved him and then made him an apostle can only be attributed to one thing. Grace. Grace. It sounds a little like, maybe I'm talking in circles, but I'm not. It's one of the so-called, you know, paradoxes that the human flesh struggles with in the Bible. For in one sense, we are commanded to obey God. We've been learning an awful lot about this from the pulpit. In one sense, we are commanded to obey God starting with the gospel, because remember, the gospel is a command. And yet, we cannot obey his commands on our own, no matter how hard we try. No matter how hard we try. We have instances in the Bible of people trying to get into heaven, striving, and he goes, it's not going to work. I'm the only one. You don't come to me unless I draw you. So there's this paradoxical thing. So to the natural mind, there remains this irreconcilable space, let's say. The command, but the lack of ability. I see it, but I can't get to it. There's this thing in between. The command and the ability to obey. Grace fills that chasm. But that's only half the battle, isn't it? I mean, God can create a bridge, but we've got to choose to cross it. And in that sense, we have to be made fit. We've got to choose to cross it. In order to cross this chasm, we must step out in faith. In other words, we must trust, or we must exercise trust in God to save us. Something that happened at salvation, of course. But also, since we are saved daily, this must happen daily. Let me see if Charles Spurgeon can shed a little more light on the topic. Up here on the board, Charles Spurgeon. Learn this lesson. Not to trust Christ because you repent, but trust Christ to make you repent. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, but to come to Him that He may give you a broken heart. Next slide. Not to come to Him because you are fit to come, 
but to come to him because you are unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. I hope that makes sense. Because he's describing that paradox. When you look at it and say, I can see it, but I can't get there. Now that you've confessed that, now you're fit to obey. Again, this is what Paul was talking about here in context when he says he wasn't fit. Again, look at 1 Corinthians 15.9. 1 Corinthians 15.9, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. You see it? You see the contrast? I'm not fit in myself to be anything, never mind an apostle. Heck, I was right there cheering people, as, cheering on stonings, persecutions. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But he continues, this is where the argument goes. But if there is no resurrection, in other words, let's suppose for a moment that what you suggest is true. What does that mean? Theologically, what does that mean? Well, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Uh-oh. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. This would all be one big lie. Verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. You see the logical end. That's what Paul's doing here. Well, let's walk this road that you're suggesting. Let's just say for a moment, let us suppose that there is no such thing as resurrection. Therefore, Jesus himself isn't resurrected. Where does that leave us? Where does that put our faith? Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, here's your answer. Your faith is worthless. Ow! If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Here's how important Christ's resurrection is to us up here on the board. Romans 4.25, <clears throat> He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof that God had accepted His sacrifice, that God would be just in justifying the ungodly. That's why we celebrate resurrection. Because it justifies His good work. It justifies our salvation, our faith. Otherwise, it would all be poof, in vain. It's the substance of what we believe. Without it, God would be a liar. Again, verse 17 and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Stated differently up here on the board, Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is our proof that he overcame death itself. Death had no hold on him. Therefore, 
He is victorious over it, as are we, being baptized into union with him at salvation. That's what water baptism depicts, remember. We went in the grave with him. We are resurrected out with him in newness of life. What if he stayed in the grave? I guess we don't have any newness of life, do we? I guess death really did have a hold over him. I guess he couldn't really overcome death. Do you understand? That's why resurrection is so important to us, so worthy of our celebration. The resurrection of Jesus is our proof that he overcame death itself. Death had no hold on him, therefore he is victorious over it, as are we, being baptized into union with him at salvation. Hold your thumb there. We'll put you a little string or whatever, marker. Go to Romans 6.4. Romans 6.4. Talking about being baptized, placed into union with him. Supernatural miracle. Romans 6.4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. That's right. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the import of resurrection, I hope? The Bible speaks to Christ's resurrection as the justification, the linchpin of our faith. Meaning, as Paul wrote in Romans 6, 4, our celebration here this morning and every day that we live the resurrection life as victors is completely justified. You should be extremely elated this morning. You should say, this celebration is mine to have. Not only that, it's not even an opinion of mine. It's justified. So says God. Does that make sense? It's not a nice to have. It's not a like I'm in a good mood and we're going to have a nice dinner or all that other stuff that goes on with eggs and garbage. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm having this day rocks because it is completely justified. This celebration of victory. We ought never shrink away from it. That is to say, it is the very substance of our faith, as we just noted in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Let's read another passage where Paul drives us home. Go to Romans 4.22. Romans 4.22. Four twenty-two. That is why his Abraham's in view faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead, Jesus our Lord. Verse twenty-five. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Boom. Right there. Raised for our justification. This celebration, this hope we have, it is justified. And the resurrection is the principle of it, is the linchpin, is the cause of it. That's why we celebrate. Our celebration is justified. Again, up here on the board, the resurrection of Jesus is a proof that he overcame death itself. Death had no hold on him, therefore he is victorious over it, as are we being baptized into union with him at salvation. How about Romans 5.1? 
Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, grace filled that chasm between the command to believe and the ability. Back to our main passage now. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 16. First Corinthians 15, 16. For if the dead are not raised, again, he's still running with this supposition. Not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're not in heaven. There's no victory for them. They've gone to hell, apparently. There's no such conquering of death. If resurrection is a farce, what do we have? Verse 19, this is what we have. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be, or most to be what? Pitied. If there's no resurrection life, right? If we just went to the grave, but since Jesus never rose, we never rise, there is no resurrection. What do we got? Some time here on earth, and then it's death. Up here on the board, Elianos pitied, pitiable wretched, in great need of mercy, because desperate. In context, our only hope is null and void. If, in other words, if Jesus didn't conquer death, what do we have? Our only hope was baptism into him and to share in that resurrection. If he couldn't do it, what hope do we have? None. Paul turns a corner, though, which is beautiful. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits mean he goes first. But we're all part of that resurrection. Verse 21. For since by a man came death, Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. And that's a reference theologically to what we call the first resurrection, but we don't have time for that. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Jump forward to verse 54, for the sake of time. Verse 54. But when this perishable, he's referring to our earthly body, will have put on the imperishable, what we refer to as the resurrection body, right? and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victor, victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin 
is the law. And here's where we get to the crux of this morning's message, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ who was resurrected, who did overcome death itself, whom we are baptized into and share in that victory as well as the resurrection. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, you get it? This is, what I, this is what the Spirit's saying to you guys this morning. You ready? This is why you're here to celebrate. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Celebrate! It's justifiable. You ever, you ever, you ever you know, been in the midst of trying to celebrate something and some external stimuli kind of like taints it? Like, maybe I shouldn't be celebrating. Maybe I'm celebrating too much. Maybe I've got nothing to celebrate at all. Why am I celebrating? I'm a jerk. I'm a jackass. I shouldn't be celebrating anything. Not in this case. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Grab hold of it. You understand? Like, it's justified. Jesus Christ is resurrected. You are baptized into union with him. Your celebration is justifiable. It's justified. So go for it, in other words. Grab hold of it. Don't apologize. Don't shrink away. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So the Spirit wants to give you a real sense of victory this morning before you go. Obviously. He wants you to own it. Own it. It's yours. Notice in Holy Scripture there in verse 58 that the concept of victory in Jesus is connected to therefore. Verse 58. In other words, as the Spirit pointed out at the start of this morning's message, don't just know about the victory, own it, abide in it, live in it, transcend death itself, because that's the truth of it. Look at verse 58 again. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Up here in the board, hadrios is steadfast, properly, sit, solidly based, well-seated, figuratively, steadfast, firm, morally fixed, firm in purpose and mind, well-stationed, securely positioned, not given to fluctuation or moving off course. Immovable up here on the board. Amatakinetos, say that three times fast. Properly, without movement or change of status, location. You're there, and you're not going anywhere. You have victory in Christ. Be immovable. Be steadfast. Don't apologize. That's it. Boom. Again, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Do you see it? Says you have victory. Grab it. It's yours. Be steadfast. Be immovable. So let me ask you one simple question then. Where did Christ's work place you when you were saved? Stated differently, and as a little hint towards the answer. How was your position different after you were saved? The answer is that when God saved you, you were what we call positionally sanctified, set in a place designed by God himself to glorify himself for his own purposes. 
You were purchased out of the slave market of sin, position A, and joined with Christ in his victory over sin and death, position B. In other words, your position changed. So the reality is, no matter how hard your flesh tries to tell you otherwise, that you are now in position B for all of eternity. And that's where the victory celebration is. That's where the victors are. That's where the capital V, Victor, is. And you've been put there. You've been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This means you are indeed justified in your celebration here this morning. This is why Paul wrote what he wrote in closing out chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 58 again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So think about it this way. You are rock solid in the Lord, my beloved congregation. Right? Who's ever been insecure in their life? Just imagine yourself. You know that Jesus Christ never suffered that, right? Never, never once did he have a, any one moment of insecurity or doubt. And just imagine him hugging you with his all-powerful arms and saying, I'm not going to let you go. Right? I'm not letting you go. How's that? How's that for insecurity? What happened to your insecurity? It just melts away. Why? Because you know that he's got you. The one that was able to overcome death says, I've got you. You're with me now. Know this to be true. You are rock solid in the Lord. Whatever you do, as you continue to obey His commands, do so knowing that it's not in vain. It's not in vain. That nothing from here on out ever will be. It is to His glory that you enjoy the other side of grace. As we've been learning, your celebration of victory this morning is completely justified. So says the holy, sovereign God of the universe, who bows to no one. Enjoy it. I want to finish this message by reciting a wonderful song by E.M. Bartlett that many of you know. And as I read this with you, feel free to sing it in your own heads. First verse, Victory in Jesus. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on cavalry to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Next. O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Next. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, 
how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. And finally, I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Amen? All right, let's get ready for communion service, gentlemen. Got so much to be grateful for, my dear family. Amen. May our perspectives match reality. That was this morning's message. That is to say that may we celebrate as if it is justified. which, according to Holy Scripture, which is the very Word of God, it absolutely is justified. For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's eat the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for giving us this moment in time to celebrate something that truly is something we can celebrate always. Thank you for bringing it to the forefront in our minds, in our hearts, Father, in our families, in our beloved congregation. 
Thank you for reminding us of the reality that is your son's resurrection. Thank you for baptizing us through your spirit into union so that we too can share in his victory. Father, we're so blessed to know you, to love you, to remember you are the source of all good things, Father, including this day of celebration. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, our families, and then out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.